tube face first time i've heard that and i really want to yep. hear i want to hear people tweeting about this and saying yep i have a tube face S- selfies i want to see selfies <laughs> of tube face well when we- i next go on the tube Meme i'll it. make i'll make sure i get someone to take a picture of me yeah on the tube it won't work as a selfie because then you can see my tube face <laughs> i love that hello there my name is kit rackley my pronouns are they them and this is coffee and geography The aim of the show is to get to know, explore and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people on this rock we call home and their love and passions of it. We'll find out why guests identify as geographers and if they don't exactly, we'll have fun exploring all the myriad of ways that connects their life to geography. So pour your favourite brew, get cosy and listen in. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPot. Off we go. And welcome to the very first episode of the Coffee and Geography podcast. I have no idea what I'm doing here. I'm just going to give it a good go. It's mid-March, so in 2021. I think I might as well put the year in because God knows when this is going to go out. Having the honour or maybe the fear of being the first guest is Glynis Morgan. Hi, Glynis. Hello. Oh, good, good. nice of you to be here. And thank you so much for being my guinea pig. Very welcome. <laughs> so um, like me, Glynis is a total self-confessed geek. She's a super Harry Potter nerd, a Ravenclaw. I'm a Hufflepuff. Um, Doctor Who fan. Good. Me too. Lord of the Rings fan. Great. This is going well so far. Uh, she describes herself as very loud and confident in the right situations, but can also be quiet and enjoy some time to herself. And her downtime often includes listening to podcasts, watching documentaries and learning new things and finds it completely hard to switch off. This just, you, this wait, is this my bio or your, your bio, Glynis? <laughs> um, and the latest podcast, the favorite one, although we're going to try and overtake it with this one, but the latest favorite podcast that she's listened to is We Have Ways of Making You Talk with James Holland and Al Murray all about World War II. I haven't actually listened to that, so I'm going to have to give it that one a go. Uh, Glynis's students um, as a high school geography teacher would describe her as super organizers, and she thinks, in fairness, that's pretty accurate. So Glynis, anything to add to that? No, I think that just about sums me up, really. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we we seem to be quite kindred spirits, especially about the the loud and confident and talking a lot and all that kind of stuff. So, not sure about the super organised one though. But <laughs> we'll see. My my students would definitely tell you that we've we've tried some new things this year to help with organising, particularly trying to learn during pandemic. And mm. all the students talk about my amazing level of organisation. <laughs> um, so it's it's definitely something that they spot about me. So I'll just go with it. Does, does it does it drive any of your students nuts though? Because it, it used to be with me. I used to be one of those people who used to have, my desk was completely clear and organised at the start of the day, completely manic at the end, and but my rigid structure and OCD would always get some backs up. <laughs> I, think, I think they quite like it. Like my year, my year 10s come into the lesson and the new worksheet for the day will be on the side and they're like, oh, we got a new worksheet to use today. This is brilliant. <laughs> That sounds um, awesome. And then they all go on about how it makes their lives so much easier when they come to revision. So oh, in well, fairness, my, my super organisation at school isn't going to change. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to move to- move off from talking shop because actually, what this uh, podcast is hopefully all about. Well, as uh, I, a lot of my uh, Twitter friends voted on Twitter, is that this podcast has been christened as Coffee and Geography, and that's what we're trying to aim for. We are aiming for a kind of coffee shop vibe, getting to know people in the mm-hmm. geography community. But I use the term geography very, very loosely. Um, so because I, I, I want everyone to feel that they are a jog from some way, shape or form. And that's and that's how we're trying to going to build a community around. So um, what brew do you have in front of you right now? Because because I'm not actually a coffee drinker, despite the fact that this is called coffee and jog. I've got some Yorkshire tea. So shout out to Yorkshire tea. I've got PG tips. PG um, tips. <laughs> I, I'm not a massive coffee drinker either. Although last year, again, sort of stuff during lockdown, discovered that I quite like the cappuccino sachets from Lidl. Oh. Um, so that's my foray into starting to drink coffee, but it is tea 98% of the time. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And me too. I only like drink coffee in emergency. But um, for, for our international uh, listeners, I, I God, that's ambitious. Uh, for our international listeners, I've um, when, when Glennis earlier said year 10, that's talking about ninth graders, kind of 14, 15 year olds. And uh, right now, Lidl is like one of the one of kind of, well, it's not a budget supermarket, but it's one of the more um, accessible supermarkets in terms of cost for, the, for, for us here. So one, it's one of our main supermarkets here. All right. So um, I really do want to kind of get you into your kind of uh, geography identity to start with, so to speak. So you're uh, you're in Morden, and Morden is in southwest London. Yes. So um, what can you tell me about about Morden, and how do you as a person kind of fit into that location? What is the sense of place for you there? So Morden always has quite an odd sort of feel to it, with the very last station or the starting station on the Northern Line. And the Northern Line doesn't have the best reputation in London as as a tube line. So most people know Morden in the context of the Northern Line, of it being very far south of the river and not a lot goes on there, which is fairly true. Um, not a lot happens in Morden. Um, it's not the greatest place in the world, but it's, it's, it's where I live. It's where I've lived for my entire life. And, you know, um, I like the accessibility of it. It's very easy to get to lots of other places, um, whether London, central London or other parts of the UK. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you mentioned about the London Transport Network. My my life kind of almost revolved around the central line because my, my, my dad is Cockney, so right, right me old China, yeah, go down the rubber dub for a pig's ear, you know. So my, my, dad's, my dad's Cockney from my land and my mum's from, uh, from Epping, so, so from the end of the ah, central yeah, line. Yeah. And then um, actually what we used to do, but I grew up in Arlo in Essex, so uh, uh, what we used to do every six months actually is that my mum and I used to jump on the central line and then go all the way to White City to have my moles checked because I had, uh, you know, lots of moles on my skin and they needed to be checked. So you had to go all the way down to Hammersmith Hospital to um, to have your mole. But nowadays you can actually get your, well, in most cases, you can get your local GP to choose now. But back in the 80s and 90s, you had to go all the way to West London to get sorted out. But yeah, the Northern... Tr- is the Northern Line like... I swear the Northern Line and the Central Line is going to be like the last lines where they have any up-to-date upgrades to the trains. They seem to be still stuck in like the 70s with their trains yeah, or something. Yeah, there's a, there's a patch as you go between Morden and South Wimbledon, which is the next station along, where the tracks make absolutely horrendous noises. 
um, and everybody on the approach from Wimbledon to Morden will be sitting there with their fingers in their ears <laughs> because you get this horrendous sort of screechy noise as the train goes over the tracks. And it's one of these things that people have been complaining about constantly for years and, and nothing has changed. So, um, it it oh, still yeah. makes that noise. I was, so, okay, yeah, I was trying to think there was which which line was it where it has the most noisiest squeak anybody phone in to this number and tell us what's the most squeakiest tube line on the tube <laughs> but yeah they can oh, they can be quite ear piercing can't they um it's horrendous sometimes you'll just be sat there kind of fingers right in your ears going make it stop make it stop because it's awful i'm trying to, um there's something that came to my mind actually when you brought, brought up the london by the way this most of this is not scripted everybody like i did not we did not plan to talk about the london underground but it's something i can geek out over day i loved the london underground i'm just trying to find um oh yeah that's it so the tubecreature.com website and their the their plot lives on the line i don't know if you've heard about this Glynis, but it's where they've plotted life expectancy based on census info and everything like that on yeah. on the yeah it's such an amazing website i've just i'm uh, i'm trying to find more than as it is on the northern line so we can talk about it but but yeah, kind of like that part of, of, of London when you go down towards... So I was talking about Hammersmith, like it's got a life expectancy of 79. You only have to go um, along the central line. So Shepherd's Bush, 85. And then as you go further, in fact, life expectancy along the central line does actually hold up quite well, probably because it goes through the city and it goes through Covent Garden. But then as soon as you get to my dad's part, of, of of the world so mile end it drops down to high 70s bethnal green 79 years yeah pudding mill lane 81 and then you go up to epping and it goes back up again with the suburbs and the and the oh. um and the rural you know the the outskirts there laden boys 81 and epping 82 so but that's really something so um i think someone everybody should check that out it's called tubecreature.com lives on the line so yeah have a look at that so you're uh, it's quite it's not mm, It's not really that common. Well, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's very common that someone is teaching in the area that they were born and they were born and bred? Um, I don't know if it's that common. I'm not necessarily right in my school's catchment area, but I'm close enough that I'm still able you know, to get to work and come home and not bump into all of the children that I teach. Yeah. Um, I did I did my degree down in Southampton and moved back after finishing my teacher training um, as I'd, I'd had some health problems. So it was easy to go and move back home and move in with my parents um, and then just have stayed in the area. I, I love, as I said, I like the accessibility. Before COVID and lockdown and everything, my, my parents and I often go up into central London on a, on a Saturday, either to go and see shows, to go shopping in central London, and where where we are in Morden just gives us that really easy ability to do that um, or go into London to get on the train and go and visit relatives or friends mm. that live elsewhere. So people often say, oh, why haven't you ended up moving? But I just the, at the moment, this is this is where I want to be. The area works. You can get to lots of places and it's nice being close to family. Yeah. Um, so you went to university in Southampton. Did mm-hmm. when you went to Southampton, I'm just wondering because we hear a lot, don't we, about how um, there is a very Lon- London-centric kind of kind of way that our economy in the UK works. You know, there's a lot of we know as geographers, don't we, about about the overheating of the South and 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 how much there is a North-South divide between between the the Southeast and the Northwest in particular. But when you were in Southampton, um, did you kind of get the sense that it was 
I wouldn't say completely different as a culture or as a place as London, but did you get the sense that people who had never been to London or like when they heard you were from London, what was their reaction to you as, as how would you, how would you kind of like, um, how was the place different really between Southampton and the people's reaction to the place that you came from of London? One of the things I really liked about Southampton was that it was a city like London, but the site, the size of it was so different. So you could get around Southampton very easily within one day on the buses in a very different way that you can go around London. Mm. You know, the fact that I could go, I could get the bus from uni to my halls and then into the centre of Southampton and down to the docks and the seafront all within a relatively short period of time was really bizarre for me because I was in a city and I loved the city environment, but yeah, it was, the scale was so much smaller compared to London. Um, and that was something that I really liked. And yet one of my roommates during first year of uni had never done public transport before because really? she came from a really um, rural area in Gloucestershire and had never done buses. Whereas I was completely the other way. And like, you know, buses are an absolute, it's an everyday thing in London but she'd never done public transport buses before. So it that was really different as well, because you had somebody like me that had come from London, used TfL every day, and you know you just got on a bus, it's what you did. Whereas this um, flatmate had never got on a bus before in her life. That's she drove really everywhere. I never really thought about that, to be honest. That's really, really interesting. Like that kind of, that difference in the life experience, just, just, just between like the rural experience and the urban experience. And... I'm going to throw a spanner in the works here, right? Because, because as I already mentioned, I'm from, I'm from, I, I, I have to, I have to keep jump, dropping the H. I'm from Arlo, right? So, um, and, and it was an urban area. It's a, it's, it's a London new town and the way it was planned out um, by Frederick Gibbard and, and all that, because of the New Towns Act, it was meant to be one of these garden cities where, where there was so much green, you had pockets of neighborhoods surrounded, orbited by a green space. And then, You'd have, in fact, the the roads are almost grid-like, not quite, not not American grid-like, but they they were designed to be almost in a grid-like. They were actually called like First Avenue, Second Avenue, and all that kind of stuff. So it's very American, kind of stylized. But because of its design, because everything was so spread out, it had a it had a very low population density for eighty thousand people because it was so spread out because of its design. You actually had to almost get around by car. Um, it wasn't really designed. It was it was designed for the car, actually. Even in its brief, it was designed for the motor car. You know, think of those very old, very old information commercials back in the 1950s where people all spoke like this. Harlow, the town of the future. So think it, seriously, you can look that up on YouTube and you'll see what I mean. So uh, I'm not doing that again. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, and so even though I kind of grew up in a what you would call an urban area, I also didn't really have the say the experience of public transport either the only time i used to jump on public transport in terms of in within harlow was to jump on a bus to go to epping to go into london <laughs> so actually my experience of public transport wasn't in harlow it was actually going around the london transport network so interesting yeah yeah well my granddad was a london bus driver for you know most of his life and then when we used to go on days out with my nan and granddad when I, we were younger, you know, for us being going on the bus was the most exciting yeah. thing ever. You know, you, you'd go to a local shopping area. So near Moss, you might go to Sutton, say on the bus with nan and granddad. And then they, you know, they take you for lunch and just when you were little, it was just really exciting. 
And I remember as well the first couple of times when we went on the tube when we were younger to go up to London to go to like the Natural History Museum. And again, that was always really exciting when you were little because it was this big noisy environment and there was always lots of people. Um, and then as I got older, it just becomes a very natural part of what mm. you do living in London, even though I'm greater London rather than central London. It's a very natural part of what you do. And it turns out it's given me something I never noticed I had until dealing with somebody who wasn't from London and didn't use London transport. So one of our units in Southampton was an urban unit studying global cities. And there was a day field trip up to London with our professor. So we all had to meet at Southampton train station and get the train up into London to then go around like Canary Wharf um, as, as part of the day trip. And when we got off the train and switched to the tube in London, my professor sort of apparently noticed this about me and he said, Glynis, you have a tube face. <laughs> and I was like, what? What's a tube face? And he said, you could tell you're a Londoner because there's a switch that you had when you got on the tube with your face and the way that you walked is this kind of like, just get it, you know, just, just walking, um, you know, with purpose about where I needed to go and to what station. And there was just this look of like, I know where I want to go. You better get out of my way. What are we all with these people that walk really slowly? And I'd never, either, never even considered this. And it, t and my professor was Canadian, you know, and he clocked it straight away that my face just changed, my mannerisms <laughs> changed when I got onto the tube because it was very right. I know where I want to go. I know how you're supposed to behave on the tube. That very British. And you don't look at people. You don't talk to people on the tube. You just sit there and then you wait till you get to your stop and then you get off. I love that. I got now I've got that song. Maybe it's because I'm a Londoner. I have a tube face. I added that last bit in. As for, actually, it reminded me when I used to take the year nines to London every every year. Like I I, I kind of had the same sort of thing. And I but but just before the train would like would pull off and we used to use the doctrines like railway because it was a lot, a lot easier to move like 50 kids through the dlr yeah. than it is to on a tube so um so we used to get like get on did we get off at tower yeah we used to get on at canary Wharf, do all the whole canary wharf thing get on at canary wharf and then change it change at uh shadwell to go to tower gateway and then we'd do a, some some um study around uh st kate's docks and um i always used to have like a little side eye grin just as the doors were closing the dlr is like none of these kids are prepared for what's just about to happen next he's lurches forward and i'm just like and all the kids are going whoa and they're like falling over themselves stumbling into members of the public and i'm just like <laughs> so but uh, yeah i like tube face first time i've heard that and i really want to yep. hear i want to hear people tweeting about this and saying yep i have a tube face S selfies i want to see selfies <laughs> of tube face well, when we, I next go on the tube, I'll make I'll make sure I get someone to take a picture of me. Yeah, on the tube it won't work as a selfie because then... you can see my tube face. <laughs> I love that. Okay, I'm gonna go and sound my attempt to sound professional podcaster, which is completely I'm a complete novice right now. You know, to kind of make it sound like I know what I'm doing, right? So for each kind of podcast episode, there's going to be a series of regular features to kind of, and it'll be really, really, really cool for for if I ever get any regular listeners that they can like thread these things together. So, so there's a few um, ones I'm going to do, and we're going to have a go at the very first one. You have you ready to go for the very first feature ever, Glynis? You're the, you're the, you're the ground the trailblazer here, and this one is called Spill the Beans. 
So, yes, my pun's terrible. Perhaps there'll be another podcast episode about my puns. Um, so we'll, what, what it is, is that we're going to talk about something that you put up on when you when you signed up to do the podcast. You gave some really cool, interesting things that people might be surprised to hear about you. So I'm going to read this out and then you're going to tell us a little bit about it. You're going to spill the beans. You ready? So you said... I am also a published poet and an author during my teens and 20s. I have over 40 poems published and two mini collections of 10 poems published. I never knew that. Now, I, I, I've known you for a while now. I mean, most of the time we just talk about like Ava at the GA conference or just like online. But after all this time, I never knew that you did. You kept that quiet. Yeah, it's not something that is... I get shout or just not something that I shout about very often. It tends to get forgotten in my school life because I'm so busy. Yeah, no, fair enough. And just like me, I mean, I mean, most people know that I'd like to dabble in a bit of creative writing sometimes. I've done some stuff at Teach Meets and whatnot, and we should definitely collaborate at some time. That would be absolutely amazing. I would love oh, that. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Okay, right. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything you are able to recite off the top of your head? And if you can't, is there any story you, you, you are able to tell us behind something you might have written? I'm going to disappoint and say I can't remember any of my works off the top of my head. Never but can the, I. <laughs> the, the, what's always been quite an interesting one is the story behind the very first poem that I wrote and entered into a creative writing competition at school when I was 13. So another sort of bizarre fact about me is that I used to play the clarinet. Um, and I used to go for music lessons um, at this lady's house in our, our live area. And my sister used to go in first for her flute lesson. And I used to sit in her living room and wait. And I, I wrote this poem um, and it was called Huddled Shapes. And I, I wrote it and I got entered into a competition. And the very first competition I entered, it ended up in the top 10 as a commended entry. Um, wow. And I ended up with a certificate and it went in the local paper and that sort of started me off really. And then I just entered lots of competitions. This teacher at school was fantastic at sort of recommending places to enter. Um, I also entered a short story competition and ended up meeting Michael Rosen um, at the Globe as part of the kind of award ceremony from it. And then it just it just kept going and having lots of poems entered to the point where I now have an entire uh, shelf on my bookcase nice. that has got all of the anthologies and there's a page in every one that's got my name on it and a poem that I've written. Wow, that is just awesome. Okay, well done. I mean, I, I've back in the early days of um, like AOL and first internet and all the new web, you know, the first websites were popping up and people were posting their poetry online. I think I got a couple of featured authors like a couple of times when I was growing up and that's probably the extent it is. But um, yeah, nice one. And did, did that experience, it, I mean, for me, when I was writing poetry and stuff like that, when I was little, it really was for myself. And like, there is a, like ninety percent of the stuff I've written is like not for public consumption, <laughs> and it's very personal. And it was a way of getting my feelings down and things like that. Was it the same for you, or 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 did this 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 experience of having this award felt? I'm going to do more of this stuff. I'd love to get more stuff published. What was the motivation for you? I think once I got going with it, it just became something that I found very easy and very straightforward. Um, I always had a notebook in my bag at school and just would write little things down and it just sort of built up from there. 
there was never any massive sort of personal things I was trying to get out. It just, I quite liked it. Mm. And I had things that I began to write about quite a lot. Um, I've never slept very well. I always have quite bad sleep. So sleep became something that I wrote about quite a lot. And that began to help. Um, I like going to the coast, going to the seaside. And the sea features quite a lot as well in what I write or what I was writing. Um, yeah, those are kind of the main main themes of things. Um, used to help a bit with my anxiety as well, particularly mm. as I got into my 20s. Ways of just, you know, getting out particularly difficult thoughts or moments on a piece of paper. And I found that I would write stuff and I never used to edit it. It just used to come out in one go. And then that was it. That was the poem. It was ready. Um, and I never used to go back and tweak it. Mm. Whereas some stuff I'd write it and then I'd go back and tweak it because I didn't like that word or I didn't like that phrase and I'd want to keep working at it. So some pieces just came straight out and were finished. Other pieces I'd go back and spend a little bit of time changing them or editing them. Mm. Did you Have you ever tried either putting those creative talents in, into your geography teaching or, or have you tried to use those, that, that kind of way of with the students? Have you got your students to try and do something creative or is it something you keep really separated from your work? <laughs> I do keep it separated <laughs> from my work but I will say that the creative writing ability helps in writing resources Yes, because I know how to write and construct things when I'm trying to write and construct things for my students. i I can make things make sense or change phrasing so that it's easier for them to understand it. Nice. Yeah. Wonderful. And um, yeah, I kind of feel, feel that kind of sense too. I mean, I'm, I'm quite creative visually, but I, I, I haven't really done, I didn't really do very, very much creative writing wise with my, with my students, which is a shame as a missed opportunity now, but I'm, I think I'm going to be making up for lost time. Watch this space, everybody in the near future. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Right, so we're going to go a little bit more now about some of your other um, interests and everything outside of, of the cash and whatnot. And the other thing that you said in, on, your, uh, on your bio and your form is that, of course, about Harry Potter. And you, are, you think you're a bit of a, a whiz at Harry Potter trivia, particularly the books rather than the film. Um, and you do have, uh, you say that you have an immense love for the stories and audiobooks. But before I quiz you on that, right, I want to ask, how did you know that, or why do you think that you are a Ravenclaw? Well, partly because I got sorted in Pottermore when Pottermore <laughs> became a big thing on the, you know, and they launched it and everyone could get sorted and I got sorted and I got sorted into Ravenclaw. Um, but I would also just go, my creativity, I think, lends me to the traits that Ravenclaw has, you know, talking about wit and learning. I love learning. Yeah. I, I think I would have fitted right in with the Ravenclaw lot in terms of wanting to work and work hard. And I just think that that would have been my house of people. They they would have been my people. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. And um, and and I, I was I think I kind of fell into Hufflepuff, really, to be honest. Um, kind of the traits that will make a Hufflepuff you know hardworking, loyal those kind of stuff seems to make quite a lot of sense um not saying it used to be true that I wouldn't say boo to a goose but since I've been a bit more of an activist with a lot of things I definitely that's changed a quite a fair bit and I'd like to see myself as the Cedric degree kind of hero even though like I don't obviously identify it as a kind of kind of that really in so many different ways but um yeah so I don't know if I think Ravenclaws were 
they could get on with everybody as well, couldn't they? I think. I think they yeah. had. They, well, Hufflepuffs were just like oh, sweep them under the rug and like. But but we get things done though. So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, I like that. Right. Okay. I'm going to quiz you now. You ready? Go for it. I'm going to start off with something hopefully very simple. Hopefully we won't fall at the first hurdle here. So here we go. Cue the quiz music. Okay. So first question. What is the name of Argus Filch's pet cat? Mrs. Norris. Correct. Right. Okay. They immediately, I, I realise this, this is not graded at all. This goes straight into like almost falling off a cliff. You ready? Question two, which is like about, it's like, this is like the Richter scale, 10 times harder now. <laughs> um, question two, although you might know this one. How many times, and bonus point if you get it spot on, You'll get a ding if you're close, right? Question two. How many times did Snape protect Harry? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> See what I mean by falling off a cliff here? <laughs> Have a stab. Three? Oh, my word. Apparently, according to my sources, but it needs to be verified, everybody. You can please correct me. Apparently, 14. Wow! And they forget these are the these are the books. So um, this is definitely from the book. Maybe three in the movies, but yeah, in the book apparently fourteen. But uh, I'm I'm going to get loads of comments to say, Kit, this was a fantastic episode, but you failed on the Harry Potter, and you lose. I'm never listening to you ever again, which is fine. Um, okay, this one's quite cool. Uh, I wonder if you'll know this one. I didn't know this one. Um, the visitors' entrance to the Ministry of Magic is an abandoned red telephone booth in London. What is the five-digit code you must dial to get in? I know what it spells. I just don't ever remember what the numbers are. Uh, it spells it spells magic. Yeah. Because if you do it, it's on an old phone where the numbers correspond with the letters. So it spells magic. And I'm now trying to remember what that works out as if you <laughs> use a dial pad on an old London uh, Seriously, um, I'm trying telephone. to find my Motorola phone now and I can't... <laughs> I'm trying to now... Okay, Where's so... That brick? So it's six, two, four, four, two. Correct. Okay. I won't tell everybody that you were looking down at something. On <laughs> <laughs> it's a podcast. No one will know. Um, okay. <laughs> Last one. Okay. This is a movie question, but I'll, I'm asking it for a reason, right? So um, um, which famous Yorkshire Dales landmark was part of a scene in the Deathly Hallows? Which famous Yorkshire Dales landmark was part of a scene in the Deathly Hallows? Going on Yorkshire Dales, the geographer of me wants to say somewhere like Malham Cove. Or like... You're correct. Malham Cove. Yeah, Malham Cove. Well done. Um, But actually, I was really disappointed because um, I used to take field trip to uh, a yearly for the the kids' John Muir Award. And uh, we stayed at Malham Tarn. Hello to everybody in Malham Tarn. You're amazing. I miss you. Uh, And... And... I used to, every year after Deathly Hallows came out, I used to get the kids to stand in the exact spot, take a photograph. Um, but it was a bit bittersweet for these kids, especially the Harry Potter fans, when they found out that, and I used to big up like, you're standing exactly where Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson were standing, all this kind of, and then, and then I'd break it to them like, you know, they actually never set foot there, it was all green screen. <laughs> and they're like, no! But uh, it does make for good geography though, so having using those freeze frames from, uh, from Deathly Hallows, so there we are. All right, so fantastic. Um, well, that's not too bad. That's, and they were pretty hard ones in there. So 
I feel like I'm going to need to check the snake yeah. question now and work out how many yeah, times yeah. you saved Harry. I tell you, it'll be really, really cool if we can. I might, I might end up doing like letters or phone-ins as a as a uh, as a feature. We'll see, but maybe we'll be like, oh, we have Glynis on the line. It was, it was actually thirteen. <laughs> yes, I double checked it. I found out how many it was. I reread the entire series again and counted them, and that and would be fairness, something we would both do. <laughs> in fairness, I listen to the audiobooks most nights, so yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Right. Okay, so we will move on to our um, second feature now, and we're going to call this Jog Your Memory. I just, this is terrible. Um, I, I might just give this up now. Um, Jog Your Memory, and this is where we discuss your views about a significant geographical event without me revealing when it took place. So you might figure out what it is before when it is, and then we can both have a guess about... Uh, guess about when it is. So now I'm going to give a shout out because I've the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to read out a paragraph from a particular source and this one comes from the wonderful internetgeography.net so shout out to Anthony you're amazing we love you and um, here we go so this is the paragraph that you can find on on his uh, webpage so if you know when it is Glynis don't shout out straight away because we can have a little bit of fun with the listeners can try and figure out when it is so this eruption was only three on the Volcanic Explosivity Index, or VEI. Around 15 eruptions on this scale usually happen each year at this location. I edited that bit from the website. Um, however, in this case, a combination of a settled weather pattern with winds blowing towards Europe, very fine ash, and a persistent eruption lasted 39 days, magnified the impact of a relatively ordinary event. So, let's see. Do you have any guesses about what it might be first? What do you think? It's a, it's a volcanic eruption, mm. um, and it sounds like the. This again, when my brain fails me at pronunciation on oh, Icelandic. Yeah, you've you're on the right lines. Yeah, so we're so we're talking about the eruption of Eyjafjallajökull. Got it in well one. I, you have no idea how much I practice that. Um, so yeah, and that's um, or or we just got the kids to write e fifteen in there. Yeah, that was the other one. <laughs> so because the unpronounceable. Um, but I did have my pronunciation checked by an Icelandic um, person when I flew through there on the way to Minneapolis, St. Paul. So um, it's been verified. So yeah. I've done it twice, so no, I'm not going to do it again. Third time would, would not be a charm. So yeah, this was the uh, the eruption that took place uh, a certain time, and yeah, so that wind's blowing towards uh, Europe, and in fact, because it happened over a specific period of time when uh, a load of teachers and students could not return to school, and my like my no. deputy head was one of these people who was late back to school by I think it was like five days because he couldn't get back <laughs> into the UK. We had a couple of lecturers stranded because um, it was while I was. Uh, at university we had a couple of lecturers stuck um and they were emailing a little bit like remote learning now they were emailing us the work that we were supposed <laughs> to be getting on with um while they couldn't make it back to the uk because they were stuck wherever they were unable to to get home wait wait a minute I'm, this this is weird so it's 2021 we're in the middle of a pandemic where this kind of way of handing in work is just the norm but you were doing it in 2010 that's the first clue <laughs> so so 11 years ago emailing work yes, yes. <laughs> it was using um the blackboard i don't know if oh you, yes in university. Used... yeah blackboard and having work uploaded through of blackboard because yeah. our lecturers were stuck elsewhere yeah there was a blackboard craze with universities the university stanglish still use blackboard um i i don't like it very much to be honest sorry if my work is listening um so 
Um, and I'm so glad that we use Teams for most of our operations now. And I'm not, uh, there are other platforms available. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I, I can't, I'm, I'm, all these tricks of, of production now. Oh. Um, yeah, so do you remember what time of year? So it was, it was, 20, it was 2010, um, but when did the eruption take place? So everyone shouting at their podcast now. March, April time. Yeah, well done. Yeah, so it, it, it started off in, in March and it went through to May. And of course, it was a huge, massive disruption through Easter. And that's how so many uh, people got caught abroad um, when they were trying to get back into the country. Yeah, so the eruption of Eyjafjallajökull Yolkut happened between March and May 2010. Yay, nice one. The fact my students always used to remember from that was the impact on the Kenyan um flowers. flower farmers yes. because the produce was stuck and they couldn't fly it into europe and they lost billions or something yeah you... and it was we always used to use it as a really good point about global connectivity even back in 2010 absolutely of, you know a, a, a volcano erupting in iceland is having an effect in kenya yep Absolutely. And it just goes to show an example as well for those who are not in the teacher profession about how you get a very popular case study, the same facts come out over and over again. And like, I, I, well, I'm not at the moment because the pandemic has, uh, has put pains to it, but, but I, I, I've, I'm a, an examiner and an assessor for one of the UK exam boards called OCR. And like when that was a popular case study, it's like, yeah, so I would say like maybe one in every three answers like in the case study section about tectonic hazard, it was, yep, it was that one. about, the, And it was every single one, perhaps except bar one, had something about the flowers. So, uh, but yeah, it was very, it was, it was, um, and this, this will be a discussion for another time, because unfortunately we don't have, but it is, I think it is appropriate for us to mention, of course, that this is um, really, really just goes to show that how globalization, although there can, it can be you know, advantageous in a way, it can be a force of good, it can be exceptionally disruptive and, and quite undermining, like because uh, the local economy, of course, who relied on those um, the production of flowers, like really did suffer because of that. And uh, and I think that um, what what everything is happening right now, you know, with decolonizing the curriculum and learning about the kind of those the the impacts of globalization and capitalism and imperialism, you know, on on other places around the world, is is a discussion that's really fired up right now, and it should be, and is really progressing forward. So, and I'm hoping that in a future podcast series, a podcast episode, that I'll have someone or two who can talk a little bit more about that so fantastic so um this this is um absolutely amazing we're coming to the end of the episode now oh, it's been i could talk forever so what we're going to do at the end of each episode is that we're going to think me and the guest are going to think of a single word uh to represent a topic that me and the guest on the next show must try and link to geography because what, what my aim is, is trying to bring everybody into the geography circle. Because I am going to have guests where they're like, I'm not a geographer. And then by the end of it, they're going to be like, yes, I am. So, <laughs> um, so okay. So can you stump a future guest by coming up with something impossible to link to geography? Now, don't say anything like, yeah, but Kit, just, just what do we think? Give, give, us, give us a word. Give us a word or a topic that we're going to have to try. Do you remember? You're, I don't know if you're, you remember Bob Monkhouse? The comedian yeah. who used to, and then he used to get two shout outs from the audience. He used to give him two words or a name or something like that. And then he would go on this wonderful creative connection, tell a story to link one word to the next or one name to the next. And that's exactly what we're doing here. So literally any word or topic that I can think of yeah. that we can connect to geography or somebody's got to try and connect yeah, to Yeah, and you've got to try and make it as obscure as you possibly can. But, you know, not, not like that, you know, some... Not not just some random word like the <laughs> <laughs> no, actual something with substance. 
Oh, and this is hard for a geographer to do, isn't it? Well, it's like the old. I remember my PGCE. We talked about a challenge that somebody did with a class once about making them all bring in a newspaper article and say, you know, is the newspaper article connected to geography? But the minute any article ever mentions a place name, it's automatically geographically located, which mm. connects it to geography. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's somebody tried to bet their class once that they could bring in a newspaper article that wasn't connected to geography. Yeah, and of I, course, they all brought in <laughs> stories about like the Kardashians or, you know, celebrities and yeah, then well, got dumped the minute a yeah. place got mentioned. Okay, let's talk about globalisation. <laughs> <laughs> and popular culture um yeah I don't work too hard with this Glynis because uh, okay. I think I think I think everybody is getting the idea as like uh uh-huh, this is a setup isn't it of course it's a setup but we're gonna do it anyway so so give me give me your best shot and then we'll just have a bit of fun with it with the next guest um next time around whenever this goes out see this is where you guys are a creative person my mind has gone completely blank. I know I know <laughs> my mind has gone completely blank well should we just go with poetry then yeah, let's go with poetry, given that we'll we talked about poetry today. Okay. We'll go with poetry. Kit, learning experience for going forward. If the guest is stuck, suggest something from the episode itself. Bing. Right. <laughs> I'm learning as I go here, everybody. Right. Okay. We're going to close off there, but uh, I want people to... The whole point of this podcast is to is to connect with the community, to get to know each other a little bit more and you know and 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 know that because of the current situation that we're 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 not alone and we and we can comfort each other just by listening to each other's stories things like that so then glynis where can people find you on social media so i'm on twitter and my twitter handle is at geography gem g-e-m wonderful and is there any shout outs you would like to give yourself the reason why podcasters do this is because they because then you go to that person and say, I mentioned you on the podcast and then come on, it's it's just a promotional ploy, you know that. But shout go on, shout, any shout outs. Well, I I will give a lovely shout out to to my department, um, and in particular uh, the lovely Susanna in my department at school, who has saved my bacon on more oh. than one occasion this year. So thank you, Susanna. We love you, Susanna. <laughs> nice one well thank you so much for joining me this this has been absolutely lovely and i'm so glad i decided to do this crazy idea of doing this and at the end of the day if it's just a chat it's just a chat you know and uh, and if everybody enjoys it that's absolutely fantastic so thank you so much for joining me no thank you so much for having me it's been lovely Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe so more stories and experiences can drop into your favourite podcast app. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at CoffeeJogPod and send us a DM. Or you could email coffeeandjog at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging.